The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, turn with me to Titus 3, and we're going to start in verse 9. Um, some of you be sad, some of you be glad, but this is the last sermon in our Titus series, okay? We're going to finish out the book. It's taken us nine weeks to do it, and uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a very helpful and fruitful series for me. Um, we're going to take the last several verses here, uh, starting in verse 9, we'll go all the way to verse 15, and uh, we'll go ahead and read those together. I'm in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Here we go. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that, they, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Uh, we're going to focus on verses 9 through 11. The end is primarily uh, personal greetings and instructions from Paul uh, just about his upcoming plans. Um, not that there's nothing that could be drawn from there, but I think the meat of what we have here is in verses 9 through 11, so we'll focus most of our time on that. Uh, verse 9 starts by saying, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. First thing I want to say is that this does not mean that genealogies are never important. As a matter of fact, God included several of those in his word, and so we know they are oftentimes important to let us understand the entire uh, history and nature of what God is weaving uh, as he's accomplishing his redemptive purposes. Uh, The genealogies that are being referenced here, they were largely made-up traditions of men, uh, and then these guys would sit around and argue about those made-up traditions Um, And the reality is, probably they would be having these arguments while hungry and thirsty beggars are often sitting by listening, and they're over here talking about stuff that doesn't matter at all because it was totally made up. This frustrated Paul, and he told Titus, just stay out of that stuff. There's nothing fruitful that's going to come out of it. Uh, The reality is, prideful men will always find occasion for arguments and division. In that day, it was these issues, these genealogies, these kind of fake legends and histories about Old Testament characters. A lot of the rabbis would sit and argue about that stuff. Uh, So they had those issues, and and we could sit here in our modern and uh, so far advanced 2015 status here, and we could look down our noses at their silliness, but the the, the truth is we are not without arguments over nonsense today. Churches today will argue with each other about traditions of men just as quick as the ancients did. Uh, For example, what kind of music is played in churches? How loud should it be? Been a lot of arguments about that over time. What should the preacher wear, right? Should he be in a robe? Should he have jeans? Am I breaking every rule everyone could possibly have in the world right now? I don't think so because I have buttons on my shirt. I knew I was going to be preaching this, so I figured 
Let's wear a button-up just to cover that base. Um, but people argue about that, right? And ultimately, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. Uh, what should the people wear, right? So they, people could argue about what you guys should have on. I think Jesus cares much more about what's going on in the heart than what's adorning the outside. Um, but all these kinds of issues people argue about, and the Scriptures don't give us definitive answers on these things. Um, and the reality is that there is much that God left flexible so that the gospel could be preached and churches could thrive in many different cultural contexts, right? If you try to make some arbitrary rule that everybody should always have long pants and long sleeves and they should be made out of wool, well, that's going to be really hard for our brothers and sisters that are serving Jesus in sub-Saharan Africa, right? And that's ignorant. So, you know, here's what the Bible does tell us. Dress should be modest, right? Dress should consider other people um, and, you know, cover yourself up. That's about what it gives us. The rest of it, the color of it, you know, all that type of stuff, that's up to you. So as we see expressed here, some of us are fashionable and some of us are not. Um, so praise the Lord for that. I meant me. I'm not fashionable. Don't worry if I'm talking about you. You guys are all great. You look like you've definitely been hitting the clearance sales and doing a good job at that. So, um, <clears throat> When churches elevate their practices or traditions to the level of Scripture and they're willing to fight and bicker over things that God is not, uh, they fail to realize the reputation of Christ and his people that they're trying to protect through these arguments is being marred and tarnished and terribly harmed through these arguments. Uh, the reality is it's not only churches that argue with each other, but Christians do this as well. Christians that are called to be a part of the same team and on the same mission, they too get pulled into foolish controversies and disputes. Uh, most of the time, these arguments within a church family are even more petty and ridiculous than the ones between churches and denominations. Uh, maybe that's just out of my experience, but I find it to be true. Um, every single one of these ridiculous arguments or you know, petty disagreements, every one of them stems out of disobedience to the scriptures and pride. Because without these things, there is no division possible among God's people. I don't know if you remember, but Jesus prayed in John 17 that we, his followers, his disciples, that we would walk in the same unity that he and the Father had. That's such a big call. And he said that the world would acknowledge Christ as king and that he was sent from the Father if we would walk together like that. He tied our unity as believers, our unity as disciples of Christ, to the, the message that the world would receive from our lives. And, and unity is the thing. He, and this prayer is the last recorded prayer we have before he's going to be uh, crucified. And so it, it was on his mind. Our unity was on the mind of Christ. I would, I would greatly hope that we could answer his prayer in a positive way. I think we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing on, on that in a general sense and most of the time? The reality is the enemy hates unity among God's people. He will do anything and everything to undermine it. However, much of the time, our own sinful tendencies are enough to cause trouble. Many times we don't need the enemy's help, right? Uh, which is sad. Uh, jealousy and thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to are pretty common culprits for strife and schism among God's people. Uh, oftentimes someone can see a problem or something not being done as well as it could, and the selfish and prideful response is, well, that's ridiculous. Somebody needs to fix this. Or, if I was in charge, this kind of thing wouldn't happen. Anybody hear any thinking more highly of themselves than they ought in there? Yep, little pride. Yep, lots of pride. Yep. Okay. I'm like that guy on the 
storage show. I don't even know why I know what that is. Okay. Uh, so let me say this. I, I really love you, so you know what's about to come. I really love you, but you know that the only way you can have that kind of attitude is if you are a spoiled and overly comfortable brat. Okay, I dropped a bomb, but I will qualify it, I promise. How, so you could ask the question, well, I'm offended by what you just said. How does being spoiled and too comfortable lead to that kind of attitude, that kind of self-indulgence, that kind of, uh, you know, I'm better than everyone else and what I think is always right? How can being spoiled and too comfortable lead to that kind of attitude? Well, here's, here's how. I bet that if, I, I bet we wouldn't have that kind of perspective if we took what the Bible says in Ephesians 6 about this Christian life and our mission from Jesus Ephesians 6 says that this life we live as Christians and that, that us following Jesus is going to be a constant battle. If we took that seriously, if we took that language seriously and we understood what it means, I don't think we'd have as much room in our life to think this kind of silly stuff that we often think. Because here's the truth. When you're in a battle, a real battle, that kind of spoiled, self-centered, all-about-me attitude will get you and others killed. Imagine with me for a second. Let's, I know, you know, we're not in kindergarten anymore, but I know you still have some imagination left, even though TV's rotted most of it away. Uh, imagine this with me, that if you were with a platoon of soldiers, and you're moving slowly and silently along a path, and you're trying to flank an enemy, and all of a sudden you're walking, everyone's super quiet, you guys are sneaking, all of a sudden you hear a twig snap in the distance. What's everybody going to do? They freeze. Everyone freezes, they're listening and then all of a sudden you hear this whiz in the air and there's a thud right at your feet because a scout just threw uh, a grenade that landed right next to you. You look down, you see this thing sitting there, and you know it's going to explode any second. Is your first response going to be, oh, come on, guys, who's supposed to be looking out for ambushes? Come on, fellas, whose responsibility is this? Why do I have this grenade at my feet? Right? No, because if that's your first response, you just wasted all the time you had. Now everybody's dead, right? Or is your response going to be, um, man, whose job is it to pick this up and throw it back? Who's on throw grenades back duty? Guess what? The time it took you to answer that question, everybody's gone. You and all your friends are dead. How about this one? I'm not in charge. If I was, I would have led us on a different path, and nobody would have ever snuck up and thrown that grenade. Where's the sergeant? This is his fault. He can take care of this and boom, right? You wouldn't even get to finish that nasty indulgent thought. Be over. That's not, that's not what you think. What do you do, man? You're, you're in a serious situation. You're, what you're doing really matters, and, and people's lives are hanging in the balance. So instead of sitting there and thinking all this dumb stuff, you're going to bend over and pick it up and throw it real quick so that you and the people you care about around you aren't harmed. Here's, here's the bottom line. When lives and missions are on the line, when lives and missions are on the line, there is no room for selfishness or foolishness. And so the only way we get into selfishness and foolishness is when we forget that lives and missions are on the line. That lives and the mission of missions is on the line. Uh, on June 6, 1944, uh, what is commonly known as D-Day happened. Uh, this was the Allied invasion of Normandy. Uh, the overall operation was called Overlord, which I don't know who was in charge of naming, but they did a good job on that one. 
Operation Overlord, right? That's a good one. So this is World War II. This was the largest seaborne invasion in history. Um, and it, it began the invasion of German-occupied Western Europe, right? So this led to the liberation of France from Nazi control. They had controlled it, and it, it majorly contributed to the Allied victory. And here's something very interesting that happened during that. Um, they knew that this was going to be wild, largest seaborne invasion ever. They knew there was going to be soldiers everywhere. There was going to be gunfire everywhere. There was going to be chances for confusion. They knew it could possibly take several days, which it did. And so uh, what they did is they had code words, right? And so if you were, if you were out there and, you know, people, men do wild things in war. They'll, they'll pull off a dead soldier's uniform and put it on to try to mask themselves, right? And um, you got all this kind of crazy stuff going on. And so these guys needed a way to be able to say, hey, are you on my team without it being obvious, right? And so they had these code words. And, and when, when they stormed Normandy, when D-Day happened... The code was, if you came up on somebody and you wanted to figure out, okay, are, are you on my team or not, you would say flash. And if they responded to you thunder, then you knew that they were in the meeting beforehand and they were on the right team. And so you didn't shoot them and, and they didn't shoot you. Any other response meant, you know, all hell breaks loose and we're, we're going to mow these guys down, okay? So... Um, just, just imagine that you're in that situation. Again, I know I'm asking you to stretch here, but imagine you're in that situation. It's dark, and you're, you're trying to move up on an embankment. The, the enemy, the, the Germans at that time, had um, gun stations set up. They, they knew to a certain degree that they were coming, and so a lot of what they had to do is they had these embanked machine guns built into the sides of hills and stuff, and so they were really heavily fortified, and these guys were just coming off the water, and with sheer numbers and guts had to run in there and, uh, and overtake these things. Where these guys are sitting there with a little window like this, just you know, going crazy. They're wide out in the open, running through. I'm talking, I'm talking men here, right? Um, so they were beasts. But anyways, so imagine you're trying to get up to one of these gun posts, and, and you're, you're sneaking along, and then you know, all of a sudden you realize in the dark there's the shape of some figures, and, and you've got, you can tell there's another small group of soldiers there. And, and you have no idea. You can't tell. It's too dark to see what their uniform is. You just know there's some people over there. I mean, the reality is that this could be two things. This could be a source of additional help and safety. You may have just found some more friends to help you with what you're trying to do. Or this could be some guys that are going to try to spill your blood all over the sand. That's, that's the reality. And that's why we needed the flash thunder uh, code word. Try to, try to put yourself there emotionally. You're, you're creeping along, you're trying to get up to this gun turret and get that thing disabled so that no more of your guys are dying, and you, and you, you round this little bend, and then all of a sudden you stop, and you, you can see this group of soldiers. Imagine where you're at emotionally, because now what you have to do is give away your position, and you gotta, you got to verbally, into the night, say, flash, with the great hope that the response you're going to get is thunder and not bullets, Right? That's, that's an emotionally charged moment. That, I mean, you want to talk about pins and needles or eggshells, this goes far beyond any of that. And you've got to have some guts to even be willing to put that out there. But these guys did. And uh, just, just think about that. And, and, and so then you, you say it. You, you utter the word flash into the darkness, and, and, and you're waiting for the response. And then you get the answer back. Thunder. I mean, how relieved are you going to be that you didn't get a bullet, that you, the word thunder came back to you? That, of all the like, whoo, you know what I mean? Like moments ever, that's, 
That's some real deal uh, relief and, and a really good moment. Here's my question to you, though. Do you think that um, the guy that first said Flash received thunder back, now he knows these are my bros, now we can work together to try to get this, this, uh, this gun station broke down? Um, do, do you think, you know, he goes with a follow-up question, though, because he's, you know, he he's not real sure yet. You think he's going to say, you guys like dogs or cats better? I mean, do you think he's going to go with a follow-up question like that? You're, you're looking at me dumb because that makes absolutely no sense, and it's a really trivial, foolish question to ask in a situation this serious. See where we're at yet? When you're in a real, real serious situation, you've got to get better at gauging what matters, right? And so I don't see these guys getting thunder back as the answer and thinking, all right, these are our dudes. Well, hold on, guys. We need to make sure. You guys like dogs or cats better? And those guys say, hey, man, we're all of us, I just asked them, we're all cat people. And this guy looking back going, look, man, we can't, we can't trust cat people. Mow them down. I don't care if they're on our team. Cut these guys down. We're dog guys over here. That, yes, it's so utterly ridiculous. You can't, you're having a hard time even understanding why I'm using this analogy. I tried to think of the dumbest thing I possibly could because that's what we do. In, the li- in light of what it is we're up against, in light of what it is we've been called to do, in light of the importance of the mission and what hangs in the balance, the things that we would find ourselves bickering over most of the time is so foolish and so silly. It is, it is comparable to being worried about whether or not these brothers that you're supposed to be fighting with, what kind of pets they prefer. No, they're not going to ask a follow-up question. They're going to say, okay, great, we're on the same team, let's get this job done. And I don't know, you know, what was everyone's ethnic background? What was everyone's preferences? What was everyone's, you know, where were they all from? What state were they from? They, they didn't care. Here's what they knew. The one guy said flash. The other guy said thunder. We're here to do the same job. We've been called on the same mission. That's all I need to know. Let's go. Right? Amen. They didn't do that because they were on the same team and they were charged with accomplishing an incredibly important mission. And that fact made disagreements or jealousy over rank or pets or any other ridiculous thing an absolute non-issue. I'm not calling any more questions out into the darkness. All I need to know is, are you with me? Okay, good. Let's do this. God's people are not without a similar example in our history. Um, Christians in the first century were heavily persecuted by Rome and uh, they often had to communicate secretly that they were a follower of Christ. For some of you, this might be like, yeah, I learned this so long ago. But I think some of us maybe don't understand this interesting bit of church history. Um, some of you see the, uh, the, the fish on the back of cars, the ichthus fish, oftentimes known as the Jesus fish, right? Um, I know it's cute because <clears throat> those that are big Darwin fans now have a little fish with legs. And that, yes, that's precious. But... Um, we don't have time for that. Anyway, so um, that, that symbol goes all the way back to early Christianity, okay? It actually predates that. Some people have an issue with it because other pagan cultures used it. But the reality is that um, it became most well-known for what Christians were using it for. And so we kind of stole it, and I'm glad because it's cool. So uh, there's several reasons why that fish was a symbol that was used, okay? So the first one is that uh, the Greek letters for the word... Um, it, it works as an acrostic, and so like, what that means is like the each letter, what it, and what it spells, like it would it would say another, or it would be the beginning letter of another word, right? So the acrostic out of the word ichthus in the Greek is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, and it's the Greek word for fish, right? So that's that's pretty cool. That wasn't the main reason. Um, 
more importantly, it, the, the, that symbol was chosen kind of for its ambiguity because what would happen is when traveling or traveling on the road or meeting someone for the first time or you're trying to find a place where the Christians are hiding and meeting because if we do it out in the open, we're going to be murdered, like it's that type of situation. Um, they'd be traveling along, say they meet somebody for the first time. One Christian, the, the first one that's trying to figure out, okay, is this guy with me or not? He would, he would go and he would just draw the top arc of it and he would leave it like that. And then what he's looking for is if that other guy's a Christian, he's going to know what he's doing and he's going to come and finish the other side. And then the guy would know he's safe, he's among friends, he's among the family of God. If the guy doesn't do that, then he's going to keep on walking, right? And so they had, this was kind of their flash thunder situation. And so um, the Allied boys weren't the first one to come up with this. I don't know the Christians were either, but uh, we were using it a long time ago. So, um, you know, same, same situation though, right? I mean, how emotionally charged do you think they were? If somebody's traveling along and, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to get where they're going and they've walked a long time and they come upon this person, they can't tell if that person's a Christian or not. There's really high amounts of danger if the wrong person figures out that they are a Christian. Imagine how emotionally charged you would be as you're like, I got to figure out if this is a brother or not. And I can almost imagine a standoff, two guys like eyeing each other, doing the circle, like who's going to draw it first, right? Because you're really putting yourself out there. Because if somebody has picked up on this, this secret symbol, man, you might be out in yourself. You might be, you know, you might be opening up yourself to, to the blade. And so, um, but somebody would, somebody would, somebody would buck up and they would go first and they would draw that in the dirt. And, and just imagine, I mean, where your heart rate would be as you're about to jump in on that um, and try doing that. And so, uh, but, but then imagine how much joy and relief they would feel when instead of somebody drawing a sword because they drew that half of the, the ichthus, they came and, and finished it off. And then you, they knew they were in the company of a brother or a sister in Christ. I would just say to you, what, what do you think happened next? Do you think that when they figured out both were Christians, both were Christ followers, do you think they embraced and welcomed each other right then? because they were both followers of Christ and they were both willing to risk their lives for him? Do you think they rejoiced in the fact that they were on the same team? Or do you think the one guy, you know, they, okay, they already did the ichthus, they figured, okay, we're both Christ followers, but do you think the other guy's got follow-up questions? Like, hey, bro, hold on, are you, are you pre-trib or post-trib? Because, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm real happy to be around you yet until I figure out your answer to that, right? What's your eschatological framework, right? Are you old earth or young earth, bro? Because we're, you know, I don't, you know, you follow Christ, but I need to know this other stuff to find out whether or not we can, we can really be homies. No, I don't think so. I think they were totally thrilled that they didn't get killed because they were in a real serious situation. They were serving Christ in a context where it could cost them their life at any moment. And so all of a sudden, all this other secondary minutia stuff that we like to get all excited about didn't matter. Here's what I need to know. When I draw this half a fish, man, are you going to draw the other one? Boom, and I'm real happy when you do, because now I got somebody with me. If, if for nothing else, now I got a traveling companion where if someone does try to jump us, at least somebody can trip somebody and the other guy run, right? They were happy. They weren't going to bicker about some finer points of secondary and, and third, you know, third tier doctrine. They were just happy to both be on the same team. They were just happy to both be followers of Christ. You know, do you think if their answers differed, they parted ways, unable to worship together? I don't think so. I believe even if they had minor differences, that they would have rejoiced together that they both believed in what mattered most, that being Jesus and his gospel. 
So here's my point in all of this, and boil it down. Just because we are not storming the beaches of Normandy or suffering under first century Roman persecution doesn't mean that we are in any less need of loving, selfless unity among us. It is even more crucial that we not be pulled into foolish and pointless strife and debates. This is the command we're seeing from Paul to Titus. This is the command coming from the scriptures to us. I, I am truly thankful for the men who had the backbones to storm that beach on the 6th of June, 1944, because, you know, the reality is, had they not done that, um, the world would be different. Um, I'm thankful they did that. I'm thankful they paid a price to accomplish their mission. But I can say to you with 100% conviction that our mission is of infinitely more importance than theirs was. And if you're a history buff, you might say, well, hold on, man. I don't know. That's a big statement. Because you could say, listen, that battle was the beginning of the end for Hitler and Nazi Germany. And it was. I agree with you. Yes, the fact that we, D-Day went good for us meant now Germany was fighting a two-front war. That's what started to spread their resources thin. That's really, if you trace it back, that's where the tide kind of turned towards the Allies. And and had they not done that, had those men not accomplished their mission, had they not put aside whatever, maybe whatever differences were, were found among them, that they, they unified themselves for one mission. And that was, we got to take this beach. We have to free France, and we have to put Germany in fighting a two-front war. If they hadn't done that, most of Europe today, and maybe a bunch more of the world, would be fr- flying a Nazi flag. So it's a big deal that they did that. Because that would be bad, yes? Right? Right. But, but So even though all of that's true, I hold to my premise that our mission is of infinitely more importance because Ephesians 6 says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers and world forces of darkness and against spiritual forces of wickedness. Our battle is about eternal things. And the fact that um, that's true <laughs> means it is infinitely more important that we practice these principles of unity and selflessness and sacrifice um, than, than any other force ever in history. It is most important that Christians walk in unity. A, because we're in a fight. B, because it reflects uh, the truth of our Savior. And when we walk in unity, even if we may have differences. Do we have some differences? Yes. Hold on. Don't get That's the only thing you guys amen the whole night thus far. I know, okay? Yes, we do. And I want no, hold on, you're missing the whole point. But if you drew one half of the fish, man, I'd draw the other. And here's what I'd know. You're with Jesus. And that's all I need to know. That means I can link arms with you and we can go storm hell. And we're gonna win because we're on we're on the right team. The guy we're serving with has all the power. His name is Jesus. And that's an encouraging thing. The eternal souls of people and the eternal glory of God are the substance of our mission. There, has, there never has been, nor will there ever be, a mission of more importance than loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Because of this, there is not under any circumstance room for foolish controversies, strife, or disputes among us. Ever. Because we're talking about eternity. We're talking about lives hanging in the balance. We're talking about souls and the glory of God. The stakes are higher for us than they've ever been. For any other, any other force in all of history. Amen? Can you say amen to that? Amen. I believe it. All right. We'll go into verse 10. <clears throat> it says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Um, 
Let's just read verse 11 as well. Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So verse 10, this is Paul giving a stern example of a place where church discipline was required. Uh, You could ask, why is divisiveness worthy of being rejected or removed from fellowship? Um, the, The response to that is that true followers of Christ will be in every way hoping for, praying for, and working for unity among God's people. A true follower of Christ will always be hoping for, praying for, and working for unity among God's people. They will always take to heart the command that says, as much as it has to do with you, be at peace with all men. Can you make everybody else all the time have a good attitude and walk in unity with you? No, you can't. But you can be sweet and precious and love them no matter how bad they act, and you give it the best possible shot there is. As much as it has to do with you, be at peace with all men. You might say, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, 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 I heard some words in there that I'm not familiar with. Some of you will already be aware of this, but this is, this is good stuff for us to talk about. You might say, what is this church discipline you speak of, okay? Um, you might say, aren't churches supposed to serve and love people? Yes, and sometimes they do that by disciplining them. This is going to be fun. Actually, I think it might be God's sovereignty that um, some folks might be on vacation this week. <laughs> Woo! Um, Paul was giving Titus some serious stuff to deal with here, and so um, what I'll do is I'll give it to you, and then I'll commission you to share with everyone that might not be here tonight uh, all of the really hard truths. That way I don't have to do it, right? Yay, go team! Storm Normandy, Woohoo! Flash thunder. All right, can tell you guys are in. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful response. Okay, um, so sometimes the way churches love people is by disciplining them. Um, I know you don't believe that yet. We're going to keep working on it, okay? Some of you are like, yeah, okay, cool. Where's the door? Um, As a matter of fact, if a church refuses to discipline its members, historically, it would not be considered a true Christian church. The church fathers laid out three marks of a true Christian church, and church discipline is one of them. I'll give you all of them quickly uh, so that you know that that's a real thing. Uh, The three marks of a true Christian church, uh, according to the church fathers, for pretty much ever... Number one, gospel proclamation. If a church is not preaching the pure gospel, uh, it doesn't belong to Jesus. Okay, we can all go, yeah, for that one, we're a gospel-centered church. We're pumped about that one, right? Okay. Uh, The second one is proper administration of ordinances, right? So that means baptism and communion should be happening uh, if a church really belongs to Jesus. Because didn't Jesus say, uh, as often as you remember, do it, sit down, come to this table, take communion, and remember my sacrifice? Yes, he did. Uh, does the New Testament not make it clear that Christians, uh, once they uh, experience the change that happens when Jesus comes and regenerates their heart uh, and, and washes them by the power of the word, that they should then um, make themselves accountable and go through baptism? Yes. So those things should happen. If they're not happening, that church probably doesn't belong to Jesus. We can all say, whoopity-doo, yeah, we like that. Communion's good. Baptism's good. Now we'll get to the fun one. The third one <clears throat> is church discipline. The church fathers historically, as long as, they've, as long as we've been talking about this stuff, have said, if a church does not practice discipline, it doesn't really belong to Jesus. Okay, I realize some might not be thrilled about that, and you might be thinking, well, those three marks, you know, great, but what about love and generosity and forgiveness, right? I like those better than church discipline. Why can't we replace that last one with, you know, love and generosity and forgiveness? Aren't those supposed to be visible in God's church? And You are absolutely right. I'm thankful that you're thinking through it and pushing back. Thank you for doing that. You're really engaging with what I'm saying. Uh, The truth is, however, that where the gospel is rightly preached, 
you will have all of those and all of the other fruit of the Spirit. And, and I mean it when I say that where the gospel is rightly preached. Um, simply having someone stand up in front of a group of people and give a talk um, doesn't make you any more a church than standing in a garage makes you a car. Okay, The gospel, the real, true, pure, powerful gospel must be preached and proclaimed in order for a church to really belong to Jesus. All of their mission, all of their service, all of their people's lives should be centered on and grounded in the beautiful truth of the gospel. It is why we exist. If it did not exist, we would not exist. We would simply be a club, and Paul would say, you should pity us. <laughs> because what are we doing, right? There's good TV on Sunday nights, I guess. So I've been told. Um, so where the gospel is preached rightly, where men and women are told that the God who created all things is completely perfect and holy, and that they are not. And because of our sin and imperfection, we are unable and unworthy to be in his glorious presence. And that we have no ability to take away the blemish of our rebellion against him. And that he is perfectly loving and perfectly just. And this means that a price had to be paid for sin. But instead of requiring that price of us, he paid the ultimate price himself. By sending the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, Jesus Christ, our Savior King, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die in our place for our sins, paying the price that was required for justice to be served. He didn't stay dead because he was perfect, because he was God in the flesh. Three days later, he rose from the grave, triumphant over death, sin, and everything that would bind us. He rose from the grave, and he ascended to the Father, and he sits at his right hand now as our advocate forever. That's the gospel. You have to be willing to tell people, God's perfect, you're not. That's a problem. <laughs> God's perfect and his, his perfection can't be mixed or intermixed with our imperfection. And, and, and we do not have what it takes to make ourselves perfect again. No amount of doing more good things makes us perfect again. Once you're imperfect, you're stuck unless God comes in and makes a way. Where it's, it becomes all of a sudden not about what you've done. It becomes all of a sudden not about your perfection, but the perfection of someone else. And he, and he lets you take part in what's going on, not by your deeds or what you've done, but, but based on what someone else has done. That's the only way you can fix it. That's why when people say, well, why, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why, why couldn't God just love everybody? He does. But he's also just. And justice had to be answered. Justice had to be paid. There had to be a price for sin. And instead of God requiring of us a price we could never pay ourselves, he decided to just pony up and pay it for us. Why? Why would he do that? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I, I'm still blown away by it. Because I guess that's what perfect sovereign love looks like. And I'm just real thankful that's true. And where the gospel is preached, the other things we talked about will be there. The gospel tells us we are more wicked than we would ever want to admit, but at the exact same time, we are more loved than we could ever dream of. Where the gospel is preached rightly, people will know they are loved. And loved people love people. Where the gospel is preached rightly, people will know they are forgiven. And forgiven people forgive people. Where the gospel is preached rightly, people will know they've been given more than they could ever imagine. And to those who have been given much, they will be generous themselves. 
where the gospel is preached rightly, every other good thing you could list that should be a part of the identity of God's church, it will flow out of the fact that the gospel is held high. That is why gospel, pro- gospel proclamation, proper administration of the ordinances, and church discipline are the three marks of a true church. May we be a people who hold unity in God's family among the highest of priorities. May we be humble and so focused on our mission that any strife is seen for the foolishness that it is. And may we be a church that is forever faithful to the commands of Scripture, knowing that this is also how we will be the most loving. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we are thankful for the book of Titus. We are thankful for the many places in your Scripture where you have told us that uh, rebelling against you is dangerous and that if, um, if your people, if the leaders in your church really love like they say they do, that they will call people to repentance, that they will do everything they can to lovingly draw them back into fellowship. But if that is rejected, there has to be consequences. I thank you that those consequences are loving and they're scriptural. And uh, I thank you, Lord, for giving us the conviction to be faithful to that in the context of a culture uh, that would most for the most part, just reject that outright um, and wouldn't understand it. Uh, I am thankful for these commands of your scriptures, Lord, uh, to hold unity high. I am thankful, Lord Jesus, that you showed us what was on your heart, that you showed us you do have the heart of the chief shepherd, that as you are about to go through the anguish of torture and the anguish of separation from the Father, uh, that what was on your mind was the unity of your people. That us today, whether we would work together for a common purpose, that us today, whether we would set aside differences and pettiness for the sake of the mission, this was on your mind before the cross. And I just ask, Lord God, that we would would answer that prayer, that we would be unified, that we would walk in unity as you do. I know we won't do this perfectly, but we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to do better the, the longer and the farther that we go. Uh, We want to be more unified tomorrow than we have been thus far. And that's only going to be possible by the help of your Spirit. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for that. Lord God, I ask that um, that you would empower us to obey your Scriptures and obey your commands all the time and every time. God, we, there, there, is no, there is no place for foolishness. The stakes are too high. We realize that. We are saying today, Lord, we, we understand that this is not a game. And we understand that eternities and souls hang in the balance. We understand that your glory and your kingdom is at stake. And we understand, Lord, that you put your church on this planet, that we are the plan, that you gave us the title of ambassadors of the, of the gospel of reconciliation, that you have called us to this mission. Jesus, you could have stayed and done it all yourself. You could have. And sometimes I think that would have been better because I look at how weak and frail that we are. But Lord, all I have is your word that tells me that your desire was to empower us, your people, to accomplish these goals, to, to, to love you and to receive love from you. And because of that, to then love people and to make disciples, to invest our lives, to pour ourselves out the way that you poured yourself out for us to respond with sacrifice to your sacrifice. Lord, help us to lay absolutely everything down. Help us hold nothing back. That is the only right response to what you've done. 
We love you and we trust you and we ask for your help in these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org. Dot org.